Peter's sermon is the main focus today, but we get there from uh, firstly Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what looked like tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, because it was a loud sound, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? So there's a giant sound. It's like the roar of a cyclone. There's the amazing sight of fiery tongues. And then the proclamation of the wonders of God in many languages. What does this mean? And of course, that portion of the people who want to quickly deal with something that's uncomfortable who immediately jump to conclusions on the basis of what they've known from their life, or who just want to be in control of this strange thing, they come up with a quick explanation. They are pixelated or intoxicated. Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. How human it is to not really look closely at some new information or at a new revelation. How human is it not to face up to something you haven't thought about before? Not to think about properly something that's new. How human to first of all defend what you know at the moment to be true so you can avoid doing any thoughtful work of facing up to something which is outside what you've known before. And one of the reasons they thought the disciples was drunk was because that's what happened in so many religions in those times. People knew, it's been around for thousands of years, that you can get a religious experience if you get pretty drunk, if you do lots of singing and dancing and to repetitive, repetitive rhythmic music and you keep it up for long enough, you can get into an ecstatic state and you can have a really enjoyable experience often accompanied with babbling away. And so some of the people who are hearing languages, of course, they didn't understand them, so they oh, they're just babbling away, although they were actual languages. But that's the religious way of the time. And that's why they said, oh, they're just drunk. So what's the first thing Peter's got to do? He's got to say, no, that's not what it is. So he stood up with the eleven, he raised his voice and he addressed the crowd and he said, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people 
are not drunk, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. So he's saying, no, it's not an ecstatic experience produced by alcohol or religious behaviour. It's too early for them to have got a skinful yet. And then Peter starts on what's the first sermon of the church. Think about that. This is a, this is a distinct plot thing. Um, how, how great is this? The very first sermon in the era that we, or the Bible calls, the last days. The era of the church, which is going to last until Jesus comes back. Now it's not that there wasn't teaching before this, because we know Jesus would be teaching his disciples all through his ministry years up to the crucifixion, and we know that he taught them heaps in that period of time after he was after he was put on the cross and before he went up to heaven. There's a lot of teaching going on there, but this is the first public proclamation, explanation, and call to respond in the church era, signified by the Holy Spirit coming. It's the first sermon of the last days. And mostly in those days, if you went somewhere and the teaching started, they'd all be sitting down. But here, Peter stands up. He raises his voice and he speaks to a crowd. He's preaching the first sermon. Now, the Holy Spirit had done an amazing thing. He'd uh, drawn the attention of the people already, but they still now needed to have a sermon because they'd seen these amazing signs of the Holy Spirit, but there was more needed. There was an explanation needed. There was a persuasion with a call to respond to what they were seeing. And so Peter links up what they saw, these signs, and he links those signs with the signs that Jesus had performed previously. He says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourself know. And Peter's just talking about the, the purpose of signs here. They're meant to be like an accreditation process. They're meant to be evidence for the truthfulness of the message. But just like Christmas Day, the wrapping paper around the present is not the present, so the signs are not the present, but the present is Jesus. The signs are just the wrapping. And you can get easily caught up with wanting too much of those amazing signs of the spirits and forget that they're just the wrapping paper for the real present who is Jesus. And so Peter gives further accreditation for the message he's going to give. And he's pointing out some more. He's going to, he's going to point out a prophecy from before, from the book of Joel, which predicts what they're seeing on this day. And it's got more than just that, but it does predict what's going to happen on the day. And it's important to just have a little thing on the side here that uh, we don't have to see the signs ourselves, although the Lord may choose to do amazing things in us, but we don't have to see the signs because we have eyewitness accounts of those signs. And if an eyewitness has seen it and he's told you, well, that's the same as you seeing it. Because these signs are signposts, pointers to Jesus. 
the one who performed the signs. So let's look at that prophecy. This is what's spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, in both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they'll prophesy. And I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below and blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it started off with that big highlighted feature, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. So Peter's very clearly saying, what you're seeing, it's the Holy Spirit here, he's the source. But at the end of this prophecy, we get the main point of it all. The main point is, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the main point. And for us, after 2,000 years of the Christian church, we might miss another little thing, which is the significance of that for the Jews. Because the Jews, you see, they were pretty happy. That was a major point for them that they were God's chosen people. They were God's chosen people because they had the law and the prophets. They had their own ancestors passing down the, the stories from generation to generation. And if you think about it, just about all of the story of the Old Testament is about God and the Jews, isn't it? And they thought the salvation was their national possession. And so this prophecy from Joel that anyone can call on the name of the Lord is scandalous. Or, or at the least, it's just unbelievable. <sighs> it couldn't be. I mean, how could... They're all unclean, all those people out there. They're all foreigners. How could they possibly understand what faith in the God of Israel is all about? And just remember that each country had its own gods. And so the country and the gods were very much linked together. Why would other countries with their own gods consider uh, bowing down to a god who for them is a foreign god to Yahweh, the God of Israel? So this is in the time period of the last days. And Joel's going to just point that out to us. This is what was spoken in the prophet Joel. It's the last days. And it's prophesied, you're going to see the coming of the Holy Spirit. But there's more. Because in that prophecy, I said there are more things than just Pentecost. Because it says, I'll show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. I don't think it's talking about the Ukraine invasion or Syria, but probably more than that. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Those are things that are going to happen in this last period. And they're still to come. Though perhaps, you know, you might think the level of pollution in some areas of the world blots out the sun sometimes and the moon looks like a blood cover, colour at night. But having given a context to what the people are seeing, Peter continues to answer the question, 
amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? So he's going to answer that question. And the meaning of Pentecost is not that we should forever chase the Holy Spirit, fire and tongue speaking and the Christmas wrapping, but that we should chase the present. We should chase Jesus of Nazareth. That's what he's called here, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that's not what Jesus called himself. He normally said, I'm the son of man. But the Jews who thought the best way that they could identify who this Jesus was was from the town in which he grew up. And they called him that. That was the title they gave him in the Jerusalem Times. That was the time title they nailed on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth. That was his common title, a bit like a nickname, you know, the way redheads get called Bluey. Peter's become Pedro. John becomes Jack. And Peter's going to start with what they called him, that common name, and prove that this Jesus of Nazareth was the awaited Messiah after all. And that this wrongly accused, innocent, miracle worker was dead because of them. He's going to turn that common title they use, he's going to turn it around. So he says, verse 22, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, that's the common word, that's how you know him. Jesus of Nazareth, think about it, he was a man accredited to you, how? By miracles, by wonders, and by signs, which God did among, among you through him, as you yourself know. Because they had seen him, they would seen the miracles. And this man was handed over to you by God. God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. How amazing is the grace of God? Because he just told them, you guys nailed him to the cross. How amazing is the grace of God in what Peter's saying here that God is still willing to talk to them. He's still willing to talk to the Israelis after what they've done to his only beloved son. How amazing, he's still going to give them a chance to be saved. Now, against human nature that is, wouldn't be us, would it? Think about simple things like the epidemic of couples who won't forgive one another for willful mistakes that they make and they'll give up and they'll walk away. They won't forgive. Consider the enormity, however, by comparison with what's happened to God here, his very son has been nailed to a cross and still he's going to forgive. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. How can God do that? Well, partly he can do it because he doesn't have the limited view of life that we have and also because it's in his plan, his amazing plan. He knew it was going to happen. I mean, he made human beings, so obviously he had a pretty good idea of how they're going to react. But take note, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. He had a deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God knew that the Jews would do their worst. He knew that they could so get wrong their interpretation of the Old Testament that they would actually kill the very person for whom they were waiting. 
God, hallelujah, knew that his beloved son wouldn't remain dead when they did that. But God raised him from the dead, freed him from the agony of death because he knew it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. And not only was it impossible for death to keep its hold on him, but there was something bigger going on and that was death. Jesus' death is going to be a payment for sin. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's the payment. He made him to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. We could stay a long time on that thought so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. So Jesus was made sin for us and then sacrificed as a payment for the cost of that sin. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. That's what he was doing. He wasn't just being killed by the Jews, ungrateful people. He was dying for them. And he died for us. In order that, the relationship we should have with God the Father will be restored. And that's called being reconciled. So that when God the Father looked at us, he'll no longer look at us and hold our sins against us or hold our sin against us. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And so today, what are we going to do? We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Why? Why is that important? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The words speak for themselves here, don't they? There is a judgment coming. Would you rather come to that judgment day bringing your own righteousness as payment or come covered by Jesus' righteousness as your payment? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, when you say yes to Jesus, when you say, yes, I believe you. Yes, I believe you are the Lord of the universe. Yes, I lay down my own pride and self-sufficiency and I ask forgiveness for the rebellion within me that wants to run away from God. When you say, yes, I will accept responsibility for my sin and I will accept that you paid the price for my sin and I'm going to release my worry about my inadequacies to you and I'm going to trust in Jesus' perfect righteousness. If you do that, you'll discover an amazing thing. You'll discover that you can become new creation. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And these things were drawn from later in the New Testament, from the writings of Paul. But let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Because, you know, he's got his audience there. It's a Jewish audience. And he starts where they are, from what they know of the Bible. And he goes to Psalm 16. So David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead and you will not let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life and you fill me with your joy and your presence. So Peter's saying, as he draws information from Psalm 16, which he quotes here, that this is referring to Jesus. It's not referring to King David when he says, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. And Peter's pointing out that's a clear reference to the resurrection. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I'll not be shaken. King David there in Psalm 16 is referring to the Lord God as being the one who won't see decay. And Peter explains it this way. He says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that this guy David, well, he died and he was buried. And his tombs over there a bit. But he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on, on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. But he was not abandoned to the realm of dead, nor did his body see decay. And it's here <coughs> that you think back to what Hayden said when C.S. Lewis understood these were not just stories, but this was truth. The resurrection of the Messiah is true. And there's more about that resurrection. God's raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of it. And what is he? He's exalted to the right hand of God. He's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He's poured out what you now have seen and heard. But David didn't ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And having got that foundation laid out, Peter's now getting to the pointy end of what he's saying. He's established the credentials of Jesus as being the Lord and the Messiah and the one for whom they're all waiting. And make no mistake, the coming of the Messiah is a very big thing for the Jewish people. They're expecting the Messiah to come. And they're passionate about that. And they're very serious about getting it right. They, and they very carefully investigated every time someone claimed to be the Messiah because they didn't want to get it wrong. And then Peter drops the hammer. They did get it wrong. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, he has made him both the Lord and Messiah. This Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, really was the one for whom they were waiting all along. And when the people heard this, they got it, finally. They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And my friends, it's the same today. Because, you know, so people believe an incredible array of different messiahs and different ways of being saved, but they're all wrong. People are misinterpreting their inner desires. They're believing all manner of interesting things because they're clever and attractive and enjoyable, and they've got it wrong. And my message this morning is the same as Peter's message. The messiah 
the saviour, the solution for which you are looking is Jesus. And if you don't accept this, then you're crucifying him as certainly as the Jews arranged for the Romans to crucify Jesus. If you're turning away from your childhood faith in Jesus, if you're accepting the party line of a world which wants to live as though mankind is the highest authority, as though your right to be your own person is the highest authority, then you're crucifying Jesus. For to ignore him, to turn away from him, is to effectively rub him out of your life in the cruelest way possible. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will enable you to accept the truth of the simple but correct and profoundly true story about why Jesus came to earth. Why did he come? So that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said, Brothers, what shall we do? And what shall we do? The answer, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit makes you a Christian. Repent just means turn completely around from running away from God to run back to God. Change the direction of your life towards Jesus. Believe, as we've said here this morning, that he is the Messiah and ask him to forgive you for your willful shutting him out of your life. And if you do this, then the Holy Spirit will come into your life and being for no cost, it's an unearned gift, and he will transfer you, boom, from one side of the ledger to the other, from, or transfer you into the Lamb's book of life and you will be saved. And Peter reminded the Jews, he said, remember, it's not just for you. The promise is for you and your children, but it's also for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So this message is for everyone whom the Lord calls this morning. You see, God has to be helping you in order for you to see the truth of that. We've got that many different religions and beliefs in the world where the people are making up their own explanations and because, make no mistake, people are very religious and they develop their own ideas about how reality works, how faith and life works. But if you've understood what Peter has said from this message this morning, and it's a clear indication that God is speaking to you. It's not primarily an emotional experience, though it may be. It's more an experience of understanding, of knowing that this is true. We are saved by faith, by what we come to believe is the truth of it, the real facts. And if this is making sense, then you know it's the Holy Spirit working in your life and calling you to repent and to be baptised. And some 3,000 people got that on the day of the first sermon in the church era, in this last day's era. With so many words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So what are you going to do with this message? 
Peter warned that he pleased with his listeners on this very first sermon. And I've warned and plead with you this morning. Same thing as Peter says. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. So let's pray. you've understood this message and you know that you have never accepted it or you know that you just haven't committed yourself fully to it then this is the moment to save yourself from this corrupt generation and as simple as praying a genuine heartfelt prayer to the Lord and I'm going to lead us in such a prayer and leave space in between allow time for you to Repeat it aloud or repeat it in your mind. Pray this prayer if you want to be saved from this corrupt generation. Dear Lord Jesus, I confess that I've been living without you. Please forgive my sinful rebellion against you. You are the anticipated saviour. You have paid for my sin. You alone can save me from this corrupt generation. I hand over leadership of my life to you. Please accept my changed attitude. Please come into my life and make me a new creation by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for saving me. All praise to God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. And if you've prayed that prayer for the first time, then please come and see me afterwards or tell somebody that you came with but don't let it just be a thought in your mind let it be an action make it real and alive and know this every member in this who loves Jesus in this room is your family now God the Holy Spirit is now within you you have a Bible to guide you through the rest of your life and you have the Holy Spirit within. Amen.